Well, hello there. Thank you for joining me today. I think you might pull up a chair. I've cracked the case about tuberculosis. TB has been on my mind for a very long time. Because in the early days, they were like, you know, hauling people off to sanatoriums because they had TB. It's a disease that, well, my conclusion is this, I don't want to bury the lead, that TB is totally cooked up by these people, and I will tell you why today as I ramble along here, because who is funding TB? Where is TB hitting right now? Well, surprise, surprise, TB is the biggest thing going on right now in Africa. And what do they have to test for TB? What's the money involved in TB? And sadly, TB is just a horrible way to murder a lot of people in Africa, which is only my opinion. So let me play this clip first. The title of the clip is, let me see here, TB cases increasing in Africa. Can new vaccines stem Africa's rising tuberculosis numbers? Couple things here. There is a current vaccine that they supposedly gave to us kids to keep us from getting TB. But there is no current vaccine for, let's say if they want to get adults lined up to make them think they're going to get TB. So they're working on a vaccine. And they're also working on some really interesting DNA kind of tests in Africa with these deals, which I don't know. These tests are just about DNA for um, tuberculosis. But let, let me play this clip first, and then we'll wander through this file. Well, across Africa, cases are increasing, especially in sub-Saharan countries. But now there's hope with new vaccines in the pipeline. At the World Economic Forum in Davos, the head of the World Health Organization said that one of the most important lessons from the COVID-19 response is that solutions can be delivered. I've been saying this for a long time. They're going to be using the fact that they seem to have used the vaccines for COVID on all the white countries, right? and they left Africa off. Well, Africa had very few cases of COVID because they were left off, right? So um, I'm guessing that people in Africa could easily find out of all the issues with vaccines in the United States, right? All the high death rates, the, the heart problems and all those issues. So I'm guessing, okay. So really anybody or anybody with half a brain and an internet connection could pretty well figure out that the vaccines that most Western countries got tricked into taking were no bueno, right? So maybe this surge in TB in countries like Africa who dodged the first vaccines, right? Maybe this surge in TB has to do with wanting to get them to start waking up and getting vaccines for TB. See what I'm saying? Maybe they realize they can't sell this COVID vaccine. So the new angle is, well, escalated disease in Africa. Oh, let's get this um, African thing going with a vaccine for TB. So let me continue playing this. Because also out of this, I found some fascinating stuff about vitamin D. Yeah, it's it, it just a crazy story. Fast, if they are prioritized internationally. So um, we have now 16 candidates under mm -hmm. development. Mm -hmm. um, many of these vaccines, by the way, were there candidates before even COVID. Mm -hmm. And 
This is the WHO director. Just listen carefully and you can understand him. The difference between COVID and the 16 candidates is the whole world focused on really finding a solution for COVID, so accelerated the development of the COVID vaccines. While TB that started decades ago, some of them are lagging behind. We have the BCG, which is 100 years old, 100 years, uh, that's it. Um, so what's now needed is the renewed commitment, real one, <laughs> no longer, really action uh, with a sense of Im uh, with a sense of urgency, uh, believing that we can do it. It, it can be done. If it was done for COVID, there's no reason that it cannot be done for this. And we have a lot of information on the 16 candidates uh, already. Um, and we said for COVID, accelerate. So we can accelerate this one too. To talk more about this is my next guest, Evelyn Kibuchi. She is the Chief National Coordinator of the Stop TV Partnership Kenya. Hello, Evelyn. Welcome to the program. Now, we just heard the WHO Director General, that's uh, Tedros Ghebreyesus, saying we can fast-track a tuberculosis vaccine. What will that mean for your work? That would be very exciting news because we have, we, we, we have continued to lose so many people to tuberculosis. Just in 2020 alone, the world lost about 1.6 million lives to tuberculosis which is preventable. So if we had a vaccine, then we would re greatly reduce the number of lives that we are losing to tuberculosis. Okay, but we already have the BCG vaccine against tuberculosis. How might the new candidates be better? We all know that the BCG vaccine, first of all, is very old. It is not effective. It's only meant to prevent the most severe forms of tuberculosis. And right now, we are seeing even people who have been vaccinated with BCG getting infected. We are getting children of three months who received the BCG vaccine getting infected with tuberculosis. That means the BCG vaccine is not effective at all. It's not helping us in any way in reducing the number of new infections and deaths related to TB. So any new vaccine would be very welcome. Okay. Now, um, mass vaccination, we all know, requires... A lot of money and we're talking about introducing new vaccines where is the funding going to come from if we can learn from the experience of covid we had covid and within about two years we had a new vaccine and we have been able to give mass vaccination to almost everybody in the world if that has been possible with a disease that has just ravaged the world for two years then i believe the same funders or the same grants that have been used for COVID vaccines, I'm sure those uh, institutions will be generous enough with the understanding that they're saving lives to invest a similar effort and similar investments to ensure that we get a TB vaccine that is effective, affordable, equitable, mm. and that is going to stop the senseless immune infections. Mm. Uh, just so that people can really understand the situation on the ground, tell us about the scale of the TB problem in Kenya, your country, for instance. Kenya is one of the countries that are high in the list of the high TB burden countries. This is a list of countries that contribute to 80% of the total global burden. Kenya is among those countries. Uh, we have been losing about 
2021, we lost 21,000 lives to tuberculosis. That compared to the number we lost to reach to COVID, which was about 7,000, we can see it's more than threefold uh, the lives lost to tuberculosis in one year. Mm. And we, we have still more infections. We have drug-resistant TB infections. And we're still having children getting infected dying from TB. So it's still a huge public health menace. Yeah, uh, sounds like a dire situation. So, uh, what are you saying? What hope is there for someone who catches tuberculosis now? There is hope, I would say, in that we still have we still have a treatment that is effective and is affordable. Well, in fact, it's, it's offered free in the in no government hospitals. So there is hope in somebody who gets infected. What I am not very sure of is the hope in somebody who is not yet infected, who we could have prevented had we had a vaccine. I'm not promising that hope until we have an effective vaccine. Okay, now uh, quickly before I let you go, how can people protect themselves against TB? We can protect ourselves by first understanding what causes TB, that is staying with somebody who is infected who has not gone for treatment, living in suggested places, having uh, poor nutrition, and not seeking, uh, staying with somebody who is infected and has not sought treatment. So if we learn those things that we avoid in being in congested places, opening windows and doors wherever we can, whenever we are in congested places, and seeing those who are infected to seek early treatment. That way we can keep away from we can reduce chances of getting infected, not that we can keep away. Okay, Evelyn Kibuchi, Chief National Coordinator, Stop TV Pub. Okay, here's my suspicion. Thanks Wait for minute. sharing your Sorry, I have the controls on. Okay, here's what I think is happening. I think, because I'm getting radiation from the environment, from the smart meter in my home, right? It started affecting my chest. And so the lights started going off about tuberculosis. So let me open up this file because I believe by putting some radi radiation around and having people access it and breathe it, it could give the same kind of symptoms as TB. But let me walk through how I came up with this, okay? Because really it's kind of perfect if you think about it because um, no one in Africa really that's educated that would possibly know how to do any searches would want to take vaccines, right? Because they think, wow, <laughs> a lot of deaths and stuff, not too good. So then they can come up with the same model, right? The same eugenics model with TB. Say, hey, it's a big, big deal right now. There's an excellent documentary that I, I wasn't even sure what I was going to talk about next, right? Because right now, and that's why I keep talking about working in silence, because right now I'm being kind of held up by a team of I don't want to call them spirits or angels, but you know, a team is evidently assisting me because I'll, I saw a show come up that said TB, Silent Killer, and I thought, what's that about? And uh, well, <laughs> here we are. Um, it has everything in it. The tests are being funded by the Gates Foundation. They have disease resistant strains, supposedly. Um, the me medicine, the medicine is just off the charts. When you get TB supposedly in Africa, you will become so sick, I mean just tragically sick from the medicine, okay? 
and it is just something else. So I really suggest you go watch for yourself. It is called TV Silent Killer Frontline, and it's over on YouTube, okay? Yeah, the, um, well, they're giving them the TV and then the so-called so cure of these meds, right? So it's the perfect thing because it hauls people off for quarantine and stuff. Um, I've also got information in this file about what is germ warfare, because TV is really germ warfare, right? Okay, so I've got who is, what is germ warfare and who are the players in germ warfare? But before I get going, um, the last show I did about plutonium, I think plutonium is their, I, I have a idea that they're right now using plutonium in our smart meters right now, because right now we are getting the heck gassed out of us right now. So let me read you something about plutonium. Pluto is the Greek god of the underworld, or Hades. It is also the root of the word plutonium. Plutonium, a chemical element that occurs in trace amounts. See here, here it says in trace amounts of nature. Well, this is wrong because we know that plutonium derives from the process to get the uranium, right? Um, but is manufactured in nuclear reactors and is used as fuel therein, as well as an explosion, explosive in nuclear fission, fission weapons. Hence, the de derivation of the title, the god of hell, is who they call Pluto. I believe plutonium is their final killing machine for us, okay? A belief in magic was deeply ingrained by the Egyptian culture and was considered as natural and normal as any other aspect of existence. The god of magic was also a god of medicine. Heka, H-E-K-A, who carried a staff entwined with two serpents. See, here we have the Egyptian natural cures being the two serpents, right? Whereas we have the doctors, which I believe is the opposite, is not natural, is death, right? The symbol was passed on to the Greeks who associated it with their god of healing and which is recognized today as the caduceus of the medical profession. Let's make this noise for a second. Oh, it's not the computer. <laughs> Some noise outside. Okay. Although the caduceus, no doubt, traveled from Egypt to Greece, it originated in summer, S-U-M-E-R, as a staff, sun, and the... Sumerian goddess of healing, Gula, G-U-L-A. And there's a lot more there. I suggest you go look um, because um, I was just scanning through the things in Egypt because remember, this is all written based on their history and the Bible and stuff. Not all the medical practices in Egypt were so successful. However, circumcision was a religious ritual performed on boys between the ages of 10 and 14. Youch! Marking the transition from adolescence to manhood. It was performed by a doctor who also served as a temple priest, using a flint blade and reciting incantations. But in spite of their precautions, this procedure was sometimes resulting in infection. 
Since the nature of the infection was unknown to them, it was considered the result of a supernatural influence and dealt with through magic spells. This most likely resulted in the deaths of many young men. And I will also be showing you today, just by these dates of when they're starting to understand these things, okay? Um, although the embalmers of Egypt no doubt came to understand how the organs they removed from the body worked with each other, this knowledge was never shared with doctors. These two professions moved in completely different spheres and what each did within their own job description was not considered relevant to the other. It is for this reason that even though the Egyptians had the means of exploring internal medicine, they never did. I guess they just stuck with magic, right? Well, that whole internal medicine thing is interesting. Um, so, before either of them, the hung this, is, this is not these Egyptians, but this is a person from the 1800s. There was a Hungarian physician, because there was all this stuff over COVID about teaching people to wash their hands. It's like, well, I don't know. I was taught to wash my hands as a child. I, I very rarely ever got a cold because I do not touch my face or my eyes with my hands. <laughs> because I learned if you touch your face or your eyes with your hands, that's where 99% of your germs are going to come from. So I don't know. I've just lived my whole life without getting flus and stuff because I just basically keep my hands clean and keep them off my face, right? So um, this Hungarian physician offered the then outlandish proposal to the medical community that they could cut mortality rates in their practices simply by washing their hands. He was mocked by doctors who saw no reason to wash their hands even before the most invasive surgical procedures and grew in increasingly frustrated and bitter. This person named Schmitzkewerzer was committed to a mental institution where he died after being severely beaten by guards for suggesting a practice recognized as common sense today. <laughs> Is that story true? I don't know, but I think that people don't seem to exhibit a great deal of common sense, if you ask me, because to me it's always been common sense. Keep your hands clean, keep them off your face, don't put your nose in your eyes, and you're 99% going to cut down infections, right? So um, the cause of disease was usually understood as a consequence of sin. And they, they thought it was sin or angry ghosts and all, or God felt the need to teach them a lesson. Um, so disease back then was commonly treated through recitation by a doctor of magic spells. So there's a whole lot to that. Um, so the diseases, um, I'm not going to get into that because we have a lot more to cover here with this stuff. Okay, so I have been wandering, wandering, wandering about this deal with the um, TV. Because here's the thing, this radiation in my home has caused it to really focus around my chest area. I put some pictures over on the website, I just titled it, the website psychopathinyourlife.com, just click on smart meters. So what was happening across my chest was this, was in the months that I wasn't using heat in the house, it was so cold, I tried using a heating pad. Well, I had to stop using a heating pad because even that small amount of electricity that close to me just actually caused my entire inflammation. So because of my chest inflammation, I kept thinking, what's going on with 
radiation and the chest, right? And then I kept thinking, now how does this impact TB? Because if radiation is their favorite tool to use on us, they certainly could have been using it in the 1800s when they had all those sanatoriums to lock people up for radiation, right? And it could also be something that by impacting us with radiation, maybe in the air or whatever, maybe not everybody in the entire population gets the same consequences, right? Some people may have pre-existing things that make them more susceptible to a hit of radiation in the air, right? So that could make them more susceptible to get this TB thing. See where I'm starting to go here? So because I started looking into, well, how does radiation work in cancer treatment, right? So first, let me talk a little bit about, um, there are um, three high tuberculosis burden countries in Africa, and um, they have, um, and that's in deaths, Kenya, Tanzania, Zambia. Um, but what got me going completely in this direction was this quote here. Tuberculosis is a significant problem in the mining industry in Southern Africa. See here again, put some of that gas in that mine, right? Because look at my house as being like a mine, right? And the gas, I'm not inside of an actual mine, but the gas is being emitted through the smart meter, right? So, so why is it a significant problem in the mining industry in Southern Africa? Well, in Southern Africa alone, TB rates within the mining workforce are estimated at 2,500 to 3,000 cases per 100,000 individuals. So, um, so I was looking at the treatments and one says, well, it can be an effective treatment. It can also have side effects. Yeah, the treatments, the side effects are off the charts. When used to treat lung cancer, radiation therapy can cause both short and long-term side effects that impact the lungs. So people getting radiation for cancer, they do know that it has both short and long-term effects on the lungs, right? Because people breathing mining industry stuff, that goes to the lungs, right? Because I believe when we inhale this stuff, naturally it hits our lungs first, and now it's down into all my soft tissues, right? And then it goes into your organs. Short-term effects of radiation may include coughing and shortness of breath due to temporary damage to the lungs. These side effects usually go away within a few months after the end of the treatment. So yes, this tells me that radiation does in fact give me this lung thing, right? Which could also start to look like it was a mining problem, right? Okay, um, long-term side effects of radiation therapy for lungs may include radiation-induced lung damage, radiation um, pneumonitis, which is inflammation of the lungs, and pulmonary fibrosis, scarring of the lung tissue, which all these things also come about from TB. These side effects can cause permanent changes to lung function and may result in chronic coughing and shortness of breath. So I am here to say that if you get treatment for using radiation, it sounds to me like you end up with a lot of issues which could also sound like TB. 
Now keep in mind, I am not a medical doctor. I think I got a D when I went to college geology, didn't even finish college, spent some time in jail here. I spent some time in a mental institution in this country. I don't really know, but common sense tells me that it is highly possible that TB could come from radiation, radium, okay? Okay, so how do we get this? This is called bacteriology, okay? The main credit for establishment, establishing the science of bacteriology must be accorded to French chemist Louis Pasteur. It was Pasteur who, by a brilliant series of experiments, proved that the fermentation of wine and the souring of milk are caused by living microorganisms. His work led to the pasteurization of milk and solved problems of agriculture and industry as well as those of animal and human diseases. He successfully employed inoculations to prevent anthrax in sheep and cattle, chicken cholera and fowl, and finally rabies in humans and dogs. The latter resulted in the widespread establishment of Pasteur Institutes. Well, none of this is good, right? I didn't know that Pasteur was the one that came up with anthrax. They seem to pull that out every once in a while, but you notice how chicken cholera, right? The, these things all start in animals. Rabies. Pasteur would be the one why we're giving dangerous rabies vaccines to our pets. See, pets don't have rabies. Okay, but then there was this person from Pasteur called Joseph Lister. L-I-S-T-E-R. Delved excuse me, derived the concepts that enabled him to introduce the antiseptic principle into surgery. In 1865, Lister, a professor of surgery at Glasgow University, began placing an antiseptic barrier of carbolic acid between the wound and the germ-containing atmosphere. Infections and deaths fell dramatically, and his pioneering work led to more refined techniques of sterilizing the surgical environment. See, we always have to understand how these things got going, so I would have to argue, what were they doing as late as 18... See, we are advanced beings, okay? I think when we all came here to the game board in different categories and stuff, we all agreed to not use our own psychic powers. That was going to be the challenge, to come to the game board and figure out how things work, work together, and all that kind of stuff. Psychopaths came in, and they had a different agenda going, right? They introduced the doctors, the diseases, and all these kinds of things. Because we did not need any of these things. But we also had a commitment that we weren't going to use our own psychic skills while we were here on this testing board, right, as far as on this game board we're on right now. But they changed the rules and they came up with all this other stuff is basically how it worked. Because if this stuff was really going since, since let's say, 1790, really, they're, they're just coming up with bacteria in 1865. Common sense, kids, common sense. Okay, so then I was looking at when did they come up with TB? <laughs> On March the 24th, 1882, Dr. Robert Koch, K-O-C-H, announced the discovery of the microbacterium tuberculosis, the bacteria that causes tuberculosis. During this time, TB killed one out of every seven people living in the United States and Europe. 
And remember, too, I did shows in the last couple of years as far as they had all those big sanatoriums that were built, and they housed prisoners, they had crazy people, and people like resting from TB. They send them away to the country to rest for TB. Um, Dr. Koch's discovery was the most important step taken toward the control and elimination of this deadly disease. A century later, March 24th, was designated World TB Day, a day to educate around the world. March the 23, 24th, so that would be three threes, right? Three, two, four. Until TB, on. TB is caused by a bacterium, I'd already said that. People with active TB in the lungs or voice box can spread the disease. They release tiny droplets that carry the bacteria through the air. Sounds a lot like that COVID business, isn't it? This can happen when they're speaking, singing, laughing, coughing, or sneezing. People nearby may breathe in these bacteria and become infected. Huh. People can get the bacteria that causes TB by breathing in tiny droplets. Okay, um, first discovered 1882. Robert Koch was a German physician and microbiologist. He is considered one of the founders of bacteriology and known for his discovery of the specific causation agents of deadly infectious diseases, including tuberculosis, cholera, and anthrax. For his research on tuberculosis, he received the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1905. So here's where we need to understand the words, okay? Bacteriology is the branch of biology that study the morphology, ecology, genetics, and biochemistry of bacteria, as well as many other aspects related to them. This subdivision of microbiology involves the identification, classification, and characterization of bacterial species. Bacteriology can be studied and applied in many subfields relating to agriculture, marine biology, water, water pollution, bacterial genetics, veterinary medicine, biotechnology, and others. So um, more specifically, so now we know that bacteriology is a branch of biology, okay? And it's important to understand how these work because then we can figure out who's doing them, right? <laughs> Germ warfare, also known as biological warfare, is the use of biological toxins or infectious agents such as bacteria, viruses, insects, and fungi with the intent to kill, harm, or incapacitate humans, animals, or plants as an act of war. So we have germ warfare, okay? Toxins would be under the right, biological toxins. Biological weapons are living organisms or replicated entities that can be lethal or non-lethal and may be targeted against a single individual a group of people, or even an entire population. So we're looking for biological weapons, right? 
Okay. Um, biological warfare, also known as germ warfare, okay. Okay. So, um, where was I looking? Well, I've been talking for the longest time until I can barely say the words without falling asleep. Fort Detrick. Fort Detrick. All this talk about Wuhan. I've never believed that Wuhan, China story. I believe Fort Detrick is where this is going on, but you're going to have to decide for yourself, okay? Fort Detrick is a United States Army's Futures Command installation located in Frederick, Maryland. It was the center of the U.S. Biological Weapons Program from 1943 to 1969. Since the discontinuation of that program, it has hosted most elements of the United States Biological Defense Program. There have been incidents at Fort Detrick involved, and spelled D-E-T-R-I-C-K, involving hazardous ways. For example, two years of digging at Fort Detrick unearthed more than 2,000 tons of hazardous waste, including vials of live bacteria and non-virulent anthrax that the military did not know was even buried there. The United States does not currently have an active, active, okay, remember all these things get put under classified bases, right? So one has to wonder, huh, wonder what all those bases are doing at one end of Africa to the next, right? Talk about classified. You've already got classified on U.S. military base, and then you put it in Africa. How many people do you think in Africa would speak against their boss if their only boss was the U.S. military? So you got a pretty classified program going on, so I'm not sure that they don't currently have an active biological weapons program, okay? The development, production, and stockpiling of biological weapons were banned by the Biological Weapons Convention, also known as the BWC, in 1972, which the United States is a party to. Instead, the U.S. has a biological defense program that focuses on defending against the threat of biological weapons. And this is how they sell this, right? Like they're out at Fort Detrick and they're causing people to get all of these diseases. Because after all, the good, the damage done to a few of us is good for the whole, right? There's always a thinking in all this stuff, right? So, um, so then I was looking into, um, because they said, instead, the United States has a biological defense program that focuses on defending, right? You can get away with a lot of things if you tell people, well, all we're doing is trying to defend you from the Russians, right? Okay, and they couldn't give me any stuff about Russia. All it said was, uh, the U.S. has military bases in several African countries, but these bases are not known to be involved in biological warfare research or activities. My bet is on totally involved, but that's just my bet, right? What do I know, right? So because they say that they totally ended the program in 1969 when they enrolled in the Biological Weapons Convention, BWC, okay? Um, the United States Biological Defense Program refers to the collective effort by all levels, because I was trying to figure out who runs the Biological Defense Program, okay? 
so is collectively by all levels of government, along with private enterprise and other stakeholders who carry out biodefense activities. Biodefense is a system of planned actions to counter and reduce the risk of biological threats and to prepare, respond to, and recover from them if they happen. The National Defense Authorization Act, NDAA, of 2016 required high-level officials across the federal government to create a national biodefense strategy together. As a result, in 2018, the National Biodefense Strategy was released by Donald Trump. The strategy provides a framework for coordinating all biodefense activities across the federal government. It elevated natural outbreaks as a vital component of the U.S. Biological Defense Program for the first time, mostly because of the significant risk that natural outbreaks pose to civilian, animal, and agricultural populations across the country. The National Biodefense Strategy outlines a national vision for addressing challenges arising from naturally occurring, deliberate, or accidental biological threats. The strategy has five goals. Have you ever kind of noticed this whole country was founded on the threat that somebody's out to get them, right? That, 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 that sounds more and more to me like a person who takes too many drugs has some issues with reality, right? This constant fear of threats. <laughs> Okay, here's the five things. Enable risk awareness to inform decision-making across the biodefense enterprise. Number two, ensure biodefense enterprise capabilities to prevent bio-incidents. Number three, ensure biodefense enterprise preparedness to reduce the impacts of bio-incidents. Rapidly respond to limit the impacts of bio-incidents. Facilitate recovery to restore the community, the economy, and the environment after a bio-incident. And there's one other thing here, I hope I'll remember to talk about it later, but all this stuff with all this nuclear stuff, I was looking more into that rocky uh, flats in, in Colorado thing, and there's a big thing there. Hopefully, I'll remember at the end of this show, I'll add a clip about it, because how they're doing this whole thing is through insurance. So any company that cooperates with the U.S., like the people that were doing the Rocky Flats thing, they're all into this special insurance indemnity. And what that means is it shifts the entire issue. If any of those nuclear places anywhere <laughs> have any issues, it shifts the entire burden to this one group, okay? Just kind of like, like those vaccine courts they have. So with nuclear, it would ship the, ship the entire burden to this one group, insurance thing. So what that means is that it's a shield for all these private companies. So none of them, after these fallouts of these things, are held responsible. It's, it's, a, really clever, it's a really clever legal maneuver they've done to shield themselves from all this current and future nuclear stuff. But anyway, I just want to interject that in case I never get back to it. Look for it, okay? Biological defense and nuclear defense. I was looking to see what are the, what, what's the difference, right? Are areas of national security. Biological defense refers to the measures taken to protect against the threat of biological weapons 
while nuclear defense refers to the measure taken to protect against the threat of nuclear weapons. Both areas involve preparedness, prevention, response, and reco recovery efforts to mitigate the risk by these things. Biological and nuclear weapons are both weapons of mass destruction that can cause significant harm and loss of life. So yeah, biological and nuclear weapons to me, I, they're kind of in my mind in the same category, mainly from the purpose that they're being used for eugenics, right? So both are being used, right? Um, so um, biological weapons are living organisms or toxins, okay, to do the illness or death in humans and stuff, okay? They can be dispersed through various means, such as aerosols, food and water contamination, or insect vectors. So I believe what's going on with these dams and all this stuff is, in fact, a form of a biological weapon, right? Because it's contaminating the food and the water. It has the insects in there, right? The effects of a biological attack may not be immediately apparent and can take weeks or days to manifest. Nuclear weapons, on the other hand, use nuclear reactors to release large amounts of energy in the form of a blast, heat, and radiation. The effects of a nuclear detonation are immediate and devastating. So, um, yeah, the biological takes longer to kick in, but the nuclear, the weapon part, like a bomb, is immediate, right? But nuclear being used as a form of radiation smart meters is the same as biological weapons and it kind of sneaks in there and takes a while to become. Another key difference between the two types of weapons is the international response to their development and use. Use, excuse me. The development, production, and stockpiling of biological weapons are banned by the Biological Weapons Convention, while the development and possession of nuclear weapons are regulated by the Treaty on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. So those are the two things you're looking for, the BWC. Now here's where the loophole is, I think. They're banned, countries are banned from stockpiling biological weapons, right? Well, <laughs> I mean, you gotta find them, right? You can stockpile them in a military base and who's gonna, who's gonna know where they are, right? Um, but, so, but, but this thing they always say is that, well, we had to have these stockpiles in this place because we were using them to make sure that we did all the tests we could do so that if they ever hit us here, we would have more knowledge about them. So they always come up with a reason why they have these things, right? Um, because it said for biological weapons, detection involves identifying the presence of specific pathogens or toxins in the environment or in affected individuals. Um, for nuclear weapons, detection involves identifying the characteristics of a detonation. Yeah, okay. Um, international organizations such as the International Atomic Energy Organization and the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, OPCW. Well, if you want to have some fun, go look at those two groups because they supposedly are the ones that write the rules. But every, every rule you'll find will have a bunch of loopholes in it, okay? Um, the effectiveness of detection and verification methods for biological and nuclear weapons can vary depending on several factors, such as type of weapon used, 
the method of delivery and the resources available for detection and verification. See, this is where it gets caught up, right? The EPA goes out, like in this case in Ohio, they go out and they say, oh yeah, we're testing, we're testing, right? Well, what you do if you don't test for certain things, this is not a genius little scientific trick, right? Okay, um, for nuclear weapons, detection is generally more straightforward because a nuclear detonation process character signatures can be detected by various technologies. Yeah, that it can be easier, but when they do this um, germ stuff against and start putting things in our water and stuff, like all these dioxins, which are right now in the Mississippi water, well, is anybody testing for these things? Probably not. Um, so the IAEA and the OPCW have protocols and blah, blah, blah. Okay. It said the U.S. does not have an active biological thing. I already talked about that. But here's the, here's the groups that are supposedly binding together, okay? The U.S. Department of HHS, Department of Health, through its Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, leads the coordination of the federal government's public health and medical response to emergencies and incidents covered by the National Response Framework. Then you also have the other federal agencies. And remember, they just formed these agencies together in the last couple of years. I guess, I guess before the last couple of years, they're all just out there doing these things individually, right? Other federal agencies, such as the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Agriculture, also play important roles in the U.S. biological defense programs. Okay. Um, I think we already read that part. Um, so, yeah, those agencies aren't really... Um, what they're looking at by combining all these agencies, okay, is now called the National Biodefense Strategy. It's a collaborative effort that involves multiple federal departments and agencies working together. So yeah, kind of funny they weren't all working together before this, right? Um, you would have thought, right? Um, because I started off, I was looking at what got me really going for this entire thing, the very first thing I looked at, which I would encourage you to look at too, was just pull up a map of countries that have high rates of tuberculosis. And what do you see? Well, not many countries that have white skin is how I'll put it, right? It's got a lot of people in Africa, Pakistan, China, Philippines. Um, yeah, some of the highest cases come from the countries that seem to have the least advantages, right? Um, and I'm going to be playing a clip somewhere in here, I hope, because about those pills, okay. Um, I first started looking at this because um, there is this thing called Ranky, R-A-N-K-E complex. It is a... Um, It is a lesion on your lungs that goes, gets calcified, right? Um, so why was I looking at calcified lesions on the lungs? Well, because it is what's referred to as a healed primary pulmonary tuberculosis. So 
and is later a man manifestation of the gaunt, G-H-O-N complex. So you're looking for two words, ranky, R-A-N-K-E complex. That is a healed thing that they get from tuberculosis in the lungs, right? Um, Ranky came from a German physician who developed the, they call it now outdated hypotheses on the pathology of pulmonary tuberculosis. So he was the one who came up with the early stuff about TB, 1870 to 1926. Carl, K-A-R, Ranky, R-A-N-K-E. Um, so I'm going to not get into all of this medical stuff and this gone business. Now why was I looking at gone business? Because the gone complex is seen in untreated primary pulmonary tuberculosis infected with gone lesion fibrosis. So it becomes calcified, but and that creates inflammation in the lungs, okay? And this is all about inflammation. And when you get, when you get hit with radiation or with TB, you also get a lot of radiation. So I was looking at, do people who undergo radiation, um, what happens to their white blood cells versus people who have TB? So, Inflammation is the key to all of this. Go look at my show about inflammation on our hearts and stuff. Their whole goal has been to inflame us, okay? Inflammation is a process by which your body's white blood cells and the things that make protection, that may pr make protect you from infection from outside invaders such as bacteria and viruses. It is an innate, non-specific, immediate defensive mechanism that helps protect the body against infections and injuries. So what happens is you become inflamed to protect yourself from infections and injuries. So that's why your lungs will get inflamed probably because it's trying to protect you from the radiation, right? The goal of inflammation is to respond to the stimuli and restore balance. So I feel what they're doing is hitting us with all these things to create inflammation into our finely tuned bodies, which are electrical, right? Acute inflammation produces very obvious and immediate symptoms such as redness, pain, warmth, and swelling. Chronic inflammation is a more gradual and subtle process. When symptoms do appear, they can include fatigue, muscle aches and joint pain, constipation, diarrhea, and other gastrointestinal issues, weight gain, headaches, and skin rashes. Unlike, unlike with acute inflammation, these symptoms continue long-term or come and go over time. Chronic inflammation can begin via the same process as acute inflammation with the body trying to rid itself of what the immune system interprets as foreign adversaries. But this can become a persistent state, even if the perceived threat isn't truly harmful to one's health. 
in autoimmune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, type 1 diabetes, ulcerated colitis, and multiple cirrhosis, the body mistakenly reacts to its own tissues as if they were formed and produces damaging inflammation against them. This chronic kind of low-grade inflammation may continually simmer under the surface. An unhealthy lifestyle that includes smoking, a poor diet, alcohol consumption, sedentary behavior, stress, and weight gain can cause this type of persistent inflammation. Autoimmune diseases are conditions in which your immune system mistakenly attacks your body. There are more than 80 types of autoimmune disorders. Some common diseases that are generally considered autoimmune, autoimmune include celiac disease, diabetes type 1, Graves disease, inflammatory bowel disease, multiple sclerosis, psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, and systemic lupus, but tuberculosis is not an autoimmune disease. Because I was wondering, is the celiac disease and diabetes, now those are all autoimmune, okay? Tuberculosis is an infectious disease caused by bacterium. So, you get it from bacterium. But where are you going to get this bacteria from? Well, I don't know if you're breathing in stuff in a mine or someplace like that, right? That would be one place. Okay. Um, they have this crazy way of listing things over at the, who are you going to call? Um, the 30 high TB burden countries, Cambodia, the Russian Federation, and Zimbabwe, have transitioned out of the list. And now it's Gabon, Mongolia, and Uganda have joined the list. And see, this is the thing. There's, there's three groups we're looking at here. TB. They also have a TB slash HIV group. And then they also have this MDR, RRTB. What that means is longer range one in the simple terms, okay? So just straight TB, the high ones right now are Gabon, Mongolia, and Uganda, okay? The 30 high with TB slash HIV, they were Angola, Chad, Ghana, and Papua New Guinea have transferred out of the list, and now is Gabon, Guinea, Philippines, and the Russian Federation. So the one, the, the next group, which is the one of the longer resisting strains and the worst cases, because this is the, they have TB and then they have the long strain TB, okay, which is, they say is much harder, and that kind of strain, they, they ship people off to hospitals for six months and give them deadly medicines just my opinion because the medicine seems to be killing a lot of people but okay the big one is Ethiopia Kenya and Thailand have transitioned out of the list Mongolia Nepal and Zambia have joined the list so I was then looking into these tuberculosis vaccines uh, because there's all this talk about vaccines for tuberculosis and um, there's a thing called the South African Tuberculosis Vaccine Initiative. That was where you would find more information about this push 
to get more vaccines into Africa, okay? Um, I found this one paper, clinical trials of tu tuberculosis vaccines in the era of increased access to preventative antibiotics. What they're saying is this. The selling point is this. Hey, we've got this TB going on in Africa right now. We thought it was we thought it was eradicated in other places, but now it's in Africa. And what they're saying is that, and now we have this other TB which has even more risk because these strains are resistant to the antibiotics and stuff, right? So, what they're saying is, if we got this vaccine, these other problems would go away. See how evil always has to come package as help. So, okay, approximately ten. 0.6 million people worldwide develop tuberculosis each year, representing a failure in epidemic control that is accentuated by the absence of effective vaccines to prevent infection or disease in adolescents and adults. Without effective vaccines, tuberculosis prevention has relied on testing for the infection. And they have a couple ways that I'll be getting into with the tests, okay? And there's going to be a lot of money in these tests. The same people that did the COVID tests are doing the tuberculosis tests, if that starts to tell you anything. So I'm going to see, does this time look like? I think I'm about halfway through this file here. Um, let's see. I am going to take a break. And um, on the other side, I've got a lot to talk about um, as far as the... Um, they seem to have bundled this HIV in with the tuberculosis, with the TB business. So let me take a break, and I'll come back on the other side. We're in the money. We're in the money. Yes, we've got a lot of what it takes to get along. We're in the money. And the skies are sunny. Man trouble, you are through, you've done us wrong. We never see a headline about a bread line today. And when we see the landlord, we can look that guy right in the eye. We're in the money. Come on, my honey. Let's spend it, lend it, send it, rule it along. about money, murder, and medicine. Huh. A lot of money in this TV. A lot of money. Plus, they get to watch us suffer, right? There has to be a very strong bit of masochism in all this. But before I get started here, welcome back. Um, let me see here. Oh, some more good news. Um, and then I'll get right to the um, TV business. The EPA proposed, the EPA proposal tightens a loophole, that's a good one, that allowed many power plant owners to avoid cleaning up the toxic mess they created. Power plants will finally lose their hall pass to leave coal ash wherever they dump it. Based on analysis of industry data provided to the EPA, 
this um, nonprofit identified 566 landfills and ponds at 242 coal plants in 40 states that were excluded from the federal regulations. See, funny how they carve out these things, right? So they let all these landfills and ponds not be part of this, right? Because it's always about the money, right? EPA estimate it would cost utilities more than $300 million a year to comply with the new rule, which is expected to become final next year. <laughs> the power industry has complained about an onslaught of EPA rules aimed at the power sector. The agency's actions are designed specifically to cause the premature closure of coal power plants, they yell. They urge the EPA to modify its proposals to avoid premature coal retirements rather than speed up retirements and jeopardize our reliability. Coal ash storage and disposal goes back decades, but went largely unregulated until a 2008 spill and right now we're in 2023, so I guess they really have rushed to regulate this, right? So there was a 2008 spill at a Tennessee Valley Authority power plant in Kingston, Tennessee. A containment dike burst and flooding covered more than 300 acres, dumping waste into two nearby rivers. Well, I guess it's good it's just coal and not nuclear, right? <laughs> destroyed homes and brought national attention to the issue. This is why sitting around quietly is not going to get you anywhere on this game board. In 2014, an estimated 39,000 tons of coal and ash spewed into the Dan River after a drainage... Wait, is this the same place? No, this is another accident. Okay, let me start over. So many crimes going on. In 2014, an estimated 39,000 tons of coal ash spewed into the Dan River after a drainage pipe running below a waste dump collapsed at Duke Energy Plant in Eden, North Carolina. The toxic sludge turned the river gray for more than 70 miles. Huh. Wow. They really take care of the environment now, don't they? Um, and I was going to get back to you as far as the, um, this is what you need to know. This is the carve-out that they have done for the nuclear industry, okay? There's this thing called the Price, P-R-I-C-E, dash Anderson, A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N, Nuclear Industries Indemnity Act. This is a sweetheart deal for them, okay? The Price-Anderson Nuclear Industries Indemnity Act is a United States federal law. First passed in 1957, and since renewed several times, which governs liability-related issues for all non-military. So, so if you're a company, like that company at Rocky Flats and stuff, you'd be covered under this. And they have other things in other countries, but since all the nuclear things are here, according to the pro-nuclear experts, the Price-Anderson Act is what brings nuclear reg regulation to any nuclear activity. But the net effect of this seemingly good law is that it allows the nuclear industry to get away with pushing all of their liabilities and risks onto the taxpayers, while also getting unlimited corporate welfare that will go on forever and ever from taxpayers at the same time. And if you ever want to go to a thorough investigation 
active nuclear or any of these programs, just look at all the giveaways they get in terms of, oh, I don't know, tax credits and just different bonuses that they give away to their friends for all these things. So, um, so anyway, so yeah, there's information out there, but look up the Price-Anderson Act, okay? And that basically just pretty much kind of puts it back on the hands of the um, taxpayers and takes all the liability away from the corporations. So, as far as this TB business, okay, they have the TB, they have the TB slash HIV, and then they have the TB with the chronic cases, okay, the multiple cases. Well, how hard would it be to take antibiotics carelessly, and that's how you build up an antibiotic-resistant strain, right? So if you give people TB, and then you give them antibiotics, and they don't take the antibiotics accordingly, they're going to set up strains that will be hard to beat with antibiotics, right? Well, over 25% of TB deaths occur in the African region, and this is as of right now, as of 2016. Seven countries account for 64% of the new TB cases in 2016. So here we get to see the target area for the eugenics, right? So we have 25% coming out of the African region. Then the count followed by Indonesia, China, Philippines, Pakistan, Nigeria, and South Africa. Now there's also something with TB. Because, for example, the pain I have in my chest from this radiation, if I were exposed to other people, it would be really easy for me to catch a cold or something because my white blood count is so low, right? So that would give me the pain in the chest from the radiation, right? It's just like this burning all the way across my chest, right? That would give me that burning. Then I'm in an environment where I'm not washing my hands very regularly and stuff lot of dirt around me and stuff come into exposure with anybody even a small child could give me some sort of a cold right well that could give my TB an active cough <coughs> um, that I may not have had I don't have like a um, cold like cough now I just I'll get a cough if I talk because of my chest but so let's say I'm in some country some poor country I get the radiation first and I got the chest burn going on right well, then I catch a simple cold, <laughs> and then I'm spewing what would look like TB stuff, right? So causes of, because I was also looking into pneumonia, because I read that, that that TB could be a differential diagnosis of pneumonia, and I thought, well, what is this about? Causes of pneumonia in patients with TB are multiple, and can, and can include TB itself. So they're saying that people with pneumonia can also have TB and other comorbid conditions, such as the HIV, Human Immune Deficiency Virus, which is HIV, which then turns into AIDS. Malnutrition or diabetes mellitus, and several, the condition can manifest with a variety of symptoms. See, this is where it gets tricky, right? and a diagnosis can usually be made on a clinical basis. So I just did a spot check of what happens is when they get diagnosed, um, they get handfuls of medicine, okay? 
Some of them take like 20 pills a day, and when they get the reoccurring cases, they might take 20 pills a day plus injections, okay? Well, the most common medication was this one called Rifepintine, R-I-F-A-P-E-M-T-I-N-E. And it's a medication used with other medications to treat active tuberculosis of the lungs. Okay, so some common side effects. Anemia, disorders, tear discoloration, saliva discoloration, arthrogia, anorexia, sputum discoloration, nausea, vomiting, discolored feces. And these are just the common side effects, okay? Diarrhea, hypouremia, urine discoloration, lymphotomenia, abdominal hepatic function test, conjunctivitis, headache disorder, and this increased aspirate something. Okay, so then a very serious allergic reaction. Rash, itchy, swelling, severe dizziness, trouble breathing. Okay, other things to note. Okay, the medication turns urine, sweat, saliva, or tears to turn reddish. This effect, now this is common, okay. This effect is harmless, but you have to ask, why, why do your tears all of a sudden start to turn reddish, right? This effect is harmless and will disappear when the medication is stopped. <clears throat> However, dentures and contact lenses may be permanently stained. This, medica this medication may, ca may rarely cause a severe intestinal condition due to a type of resistant bacteria. Um, this condition may occur during treatment or weeks to months after treatment has stopped. Do not use anti-diarrhea or opioid medications if you have any of the following symptoms because these products may make them worse. So that was the one pill, the most common pill, okay? And the other one, now I'm not going to go through the 20, I'm just going to the two. <laughs> There's this other pill <clears throat> called I-S-O-N-I-A-Z-I-D. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. Speaking of coughing. <coughs> okay. That is used with other medications to treat active tuberculosis infections. It is also used alone to prevent active TB infections in people who may be infected with the people who may have a positive skin test. And this, <coughs> this is the common side effects. Okay. These are the common side effects. Peripheral neuropathy, hepatitis, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, proxidine deficiency. I don't know what that means. P-Y-R-I-D-O-X-I-N-E deficiency, dyspepsia, abnormal heptic functions. That has to do with, <clears throat> and gastronomical irritation. Now, the heptic thing has to do with hepatitis, right? If any of these effects persist or worsen, call your doctor promptly. Promptly. Serious side effects include numbing, tingling of arms, legs, painful swollen joints, increased thirst and urination, vision, vision changes, easy bruising and bleeding, mental mood changes, and seizures. So, um, yeah. And that was, those were the rare side effects of seizures, okay? Um, a very serious allergic reaction to this drug is rare. However, okay, fever that doesn't go away, 
new or worsening lymph node swelling, rash, itching, swelling, severe dizziness, trouble breathing. Okay, so doesn't sound good, does it? Severe and sometimes fatal hepatitis has been reported with isoterous therapy. So this pill has created hepatitis. Maybe, I don't know, why, is, why are things turning orange? Because when you get hepatitis, your eyes and stuff turn yellow. So um, it may occur even after months of treatment. So I guess if you get it months after treatment, you probably don't associate it with this, right? The risk for hepatitis increases with advancing age, alcohol use, chronic liver disease, and injection drug use. Patients giving this drug should be monitored and interviewed at monthly interviews. Well, I'm pretty sure that probably doesn't happen, but let's keep going here. Um, yeah, and all this mental depression. Um, well, um, irritation place. Okay. The most the most commonly reported side effect included mild and transient elevation of serum transamine levels, peripheral neuropathy, and hepatitis. So, doesn't sound too good. But anyways, um, and remember, I'll be getting to that in a minute too. When they one thing they have tied to TB is the stigma, okay? So if you get TB in one of these countries, you're going to be stigmatized. Nobody's going to want to be around you because of the fear of them catching it too, right? Because what I found interesting is TB and radiation are both considered silent killers. And it said, yes, both TB and radiation can be harmful. TB is a contagious infection caused by bacteria that mainly affects the lungs, but can also affect any other organ, including bone, brain, and spine. Radiation is the emission or transmission of energy in the form of waves or particles through space or through a material medium. So um, tuberculosis can be considered a silent killer because it can be present in a person's body without showing any symptoms. This is known as latent tuberculosis. Similarly, radiation can also be harmful without being immediately noticeable. And that's what I think I said in the other segment. It gets to your lungs because you breathe it in, right? And it gets, it went through your lungs to get to your soft tissues, meaning your organs. And that's why you get the burning in the chest, which could very easily start to look like TB, right? And I wanted to say, for example, exposure to high levels of ionizing radiation can increase the risk of cancer and other diseases, but the effects may not be apparent until years after the exposure. What are other silent killers? TB is a major health concern in Africa. Okay. Um, so, silent killers are medical conditions with no obvious symptoms that can progress to an advanced stage before they are discovered, which makes it also trickier to figure out what they have even were, right? Some examples of silent killers include heart disease, prostate cancer, and hypertension. 
these conditions can be dangerous because they often go unnoticed until it's too late. Okay, in the show, I'll remind you one more time to watch. It is well worth the time. It's called TB Silent Killer Frontline is the group. So let's talk about TB and poverty that I looked at. It is a big deal relating to poverty. Because let's say if I was in poverty, didn't wash my hands with this radiation, I would very easily be tricked into getting, uh, tripped into getting some kind of cold or virus, right? It's no coincidence that the countries with the highest rates of TB are also some of the poorest or the most unequal societies. TB is more common in countries where many people live in absolute poverty because people are more likely to live and work in poorly ventilated and overcrowded conditions which provide ideal conditions for TB bacteria to spread, suffer from malnutrition and disease, particularly HIV, which redu reduces resistance to TB. And I have a lot about HIV here. I really went in circles over that HIV business and how it relates to tuberculosis, but we'll get there in a minute. Have limited access to health care, uh, and they say that one person with untreated infections can pass the illness on to 10 to 15 people annually. Well, they don't know that, right? That's just kind of a guess. TB sounds also like the COVID thing, right? Weren't they saying the little droplets would spit out? Um, TB affects the vulnerable. In any society rich or poor, TB tends to impact heavily on the poorest and most marginalized group. Migrant communities, people with drink, drug, or mental health issues, homeless people and those in poor quality housing, people with weak immune systems due to HIV, other illnesses, or age, people with a history of prison. A spiral of poverty. People with TB can find themselves in a downward spiral of poverty. This is because loss of productivity. They are often unable to work or attend school for three to four months on average. Carers, if needed, may be expected to give up work or school themselves. This can result in a significant loss of earnings or reduce a child's future potential earnings. If a patient dies, a family loses about 15 years of potential income. Associated costs of TB people may not be aware of or able to access is free treatment, and may, but they may end up paying traditional healers or private doctors. Even where TB treatment and drugs are free, there is often a cost of traveling to clinics and additional heating or nutritional needs. Stigma, and this is a huge one. People can lose their jobs or be excluded from future employment because of fears surrounding TB. Women may be divorced or considered unworthy of marriage if they are known to have been affected by TB, making them likely to experience extreme poverty. TB is more common in countries where many people live in absolute poverty because they're, oh, I already talked about that. Um, and interestingly enough, certain medical conditions contribute diabetes, cancer, and HIV infections. Alter the immune system's ability to fight TB germs. 
as a result, people with these medical conditions are more likely to develop TB disease if they are infected with TB germs. Well, um, also, you get these same things from radiation, right? Um, and also, I'll be getting more to this thing with the vitamin D in a minute here. Okay. Okay, um, HIV, poverty, drug, alcohol, homelessness, prison, uh, people who are discriminated against may be isolated socially, particularly in small communities, and a lot of this is going on in small communities, even entire families may be shunned. So TB caused by the bacterium called the microbacterium tuberculosis, okay? But remember, they're the ones saying this, right? Because it says the TB bacterium can spread from person to person through the air. HIV weakens the immune system, increasing the risk of TB in people with HIV. People living with HIV are more likely than others to become sick with TB because HIV weakens the immune system, which makes it harder for the body to fight the TB germs. And here again, those germs, right? Infection with both HIV and TB is called HIV slash TB co-infection. Among people with latent TB infection, HIV infection is the strongest known risk for the progression to TB disease. Untreated latent TB infection is more likely to advance to TB disease. Oh, you get an excuse me, you get an infection, then you get the disease. Okay, I don't mean to sound confusing here. Okay, the way I'm inflecting these words. So untreated latent TB infections is more likely to advance to TB disease in people with HIV than in people. So if you have HIV, you're more likely to advance to this TB disease, okay? And they have the TB and the HIV so intermingled, okay? And people with, how are you doing, sweetie? They're really... You know, here's the thing. I was going to say this earlier, but let me let me interject it here. Now that he's having a hard time breathing, um, you know, they're really gunning the heck out of my house even harder, right? And um, it's very aggressive. And I have to say that um, I wonder what the plan is because because like as I said in the other show when I talked about this originally, the transformer box is a third of an acre from my back door, right? How is that impacting my neighbors around there? Are my neighbors in this general vicinity all getting sick? Um, from the, if, if I have neighbors in this area that already have immune compromised things, is the radiation from my transformer hitting them too? Likely, right? So what happens, what is the cover story? What, what do these people say when let's say the whole household of people just drops over dead? <laughs> Nobody's gonna wonder why they all die at once. <laughs> And I've arranged to have all of our blood drawn, so it will be very easy to prove because all you have to do is check that white blood cell count, right? And then maybe some of the neighbors might want to go after them, I don't know. But here's the thing, because uh, it is spewing all over the neighborhood is my biggest concern. So yeah, um, and it all depends on how weak you are with other immune issues. You don't have to have 
HIV, just other immune issues, okay? So in people with HIV, TB disease is considered an AIDS-defining condition because you get HIV first and then you get AIDS. So what they're saying, then you get TB and that defines you as getting AIDS, right? People infected with HIV who also have either latent TB infection or TB disease can be effectively treated. Well, it <laughs> well, the treatment is the treatment is probably worse than the cure. Okay, um, just my opinion. Okay, what they said originally was HIV infections in humans came from a type of chimpanzee in Central Africa. And I remember years ago there was this whole thing about these stewardesses or some gay steward from some airline from San Francisco had sex with some other country who had sex with a monkey. <laughs> Anyhow, um, so they said that they always have to have the monkeys and, and monkeys and bats and, you know, they, when they get the um, smallpox came from cows and um, they've been cross-infecting us since the beginning. Um, studies show that HIV may have jumped from chimpanzees to humans as far back as the late 1800s. The chimpanzee version of the virus is called simian immunodeficiency virus, or SIV. It was probably passed to humans when humans hunted these chimp chimpanzees for meat and came into contact with their infected blood. So I guess the story goes, chimpanzees had infected blood and when people ate the meat, bleh. Okay, um, so let's understand what HIV is, okay? It's human immunodeficiency virus. Is a virus that attacks the body's immune system. If HIV is not treated, it can lead to AIDS. Here's the catch, right? If you tell a bunch of people they have HIV and tell them that if they don't take these pills, they might get AIDS. Just thinking out loud, right? There is currently no effective cure. But, I mean, you could sell a lot of HIV pills now, couldn't you? We're in the money. Once people get HIV, they have it for life, or so they're told, right? HIV infection in humans came from that type of chimpanzee in Central Africa. Um, so they said it was a specific strain from the Belgian Congo, okay? Now, wasn't the Belgian Congo, weren't those the freaks that started those human zoos? Those people from Belgium that, they were the ones that started human zoos in Belgium to show people black people. Okay, there are two ty main types, HIV-1 and HIV-2. Okay, so pay attention here, kids. HIV-1 is more virulent, easily transmitted, and is the cause of the vast majority of HIV infections globally. And it can be gone into four groups, but just remember, it can be four groups, okay? 
According to UNAIDS, there were approximately 38.4 million people across the globe with HIV in 2021, okay? 38.4, okay, across the globe. But there were 20.6 million people with HIV, HIV or 53% in Eastern and Southern Africa. 5 million in Western and Central Africa. 6 million in Asia and the Pacific. You see where this is starting to go? 2.3 million or 5% in Western and Central Europe and North America. The countries with the highest rates of HIV, and that's before it gets to be AIDS, don't forget that part, okay, include Eswatini, it's spelled E-S-W-A-T-I-N-I, or another place called L-E-S-O-T-H-O, and Botswana. In 2021, Eswatini had the highest prevalence of HIV with a rate of almost 28%. So I looked up, where is this place? Um, where is this place? It is a small landlocked kingdom in southern Africa bounded by South Africa and Mozambique. 1,300,000 population as of 2015. Official language is Swazi and English, huh? Um, the kingdom was a South African protectorate from 1894 and came under British rule in 1902. Hmm. So, too bad for them, right? Um, HIV remains a major global health issue, having claimed 40.1 million lives. Well, you know, when they say 40, it's probably a lot higher because how do you know that these people specifically had HIV? How do you know that they didn't go on to become drug addicts and they got part of that count or they got killed? And, you know, it, it's probably a very loose estimate. The symptoms of HIV vary depend depending on the stage. And here's where it gets squishy, right? The symptoms, right? It covers a pretty big area. Within two to four weeks after infection with HIV, about two-thirds of people will have a flu-like illness. This is the body's natural response to HIV infection. Flu-like symptoms can include fever, chills, rash, night sweats, muscle aches, sore throat, fatigue, swollen lip, lymph nodes, and mouth ulcers. These symptoms can last anywhere from a few days to several weeks. But some people do not have any symptoms at all during this early stage of HIV. See, this is almost like the Bible, right? They give you two angles, everything, right? Without treatment with HIV medications, HIV infection, it, infection advances in stages, getting worse over time. The three stages, of course, are acute HIV infection, chronic HIV infection, acquired immunodeficiency symptoms, that, and that is AIDS. So the first two steps of HIV, okay, first you get acute HIV infection, which we don't really know exactly what the symptoms are, right? Could be a bunch of things. Then you get the chronic HIV infection, probably just an escalated version of more swollen lip nose, more throwing up, more flu-like symptoms. And let me see here. Um, 
Where was I? Oh. So, you get the AIDS, which is the Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, is what AIDS means, okay? If AIDS, excuse me, if HIV has a chance to cause a lot of damage to your immune system, you may become ill from certain serious opportunistic infections and cancers. These illnesses are also known as AIDS-defining. Symptoms in later stage HIV and AIDS include viral, bacterial, fungal, and parasitic infections, as well as cancers like invasive cervical cancer and non-Hodgins lymphoma. HIV causes impairment of the immune system by attacking a specific type of immune cell called the T helper cell. The T helper cell represents a more minor fraction of your white blood cells. So because I was wondering, people with HIV actually don't have low white blood cell counts because I was wondering if they have the low blood cell counts too, but it's because of this T helper cells play an important role in the adaptive immune system. They aid the activity of other immune cells by releasing cytokines. C-Y-T-O-K-I-N-E-S. Helper T cells sense when there is an infection in your body and activate other immune cells to fight the infection. They may activate cytonic T cells or may activate B cells, which produce antibodies. HIV is transmitted through certain body fluids from a person with HIV who has had a detectable viral load. These fluids are blood, semen, preseminal fluid, rectal fluids, vaginal fluids, and breast milk. In the United States, the most common ways HIV is transmitted are through having vaginal or anal sex with someone who has HIV without using a condom or taking medications to prevent or treat HIV, and sharing needles, syringes, or other drug injection equipment with someone who has HIV. Now here's where it gets interesting, okay? because they also have a whole bunch of medications that you can take. Let's say that you're planning on having sex with somebody who has HIV, right? Well, there's medications you can take ahead of time. Cha-ching, cha-ching. They're called pre-exposure prophylactics. And those are things you take can take for other diseases, but in this case, that's what it's for, okay? pretty ingenious marketing tool, right? Now, I'm just guessing here, right? Medication for HIV prevention is called pre-exposure prophylaxis, or P-R-E-P, PrEP. It is taken by people who are at high risk of HIV infection. PrEP consists of a pill that contains two HIV drugs. PrEP reduces the risk of getting HIV from sex by about 99%. Or maybe it doesn't do anything at all. You just think it's 99%, right? Medication for HIV treatment is called 
antiviral therapy, or ART art. It is taken by people who have HIV to reduce the amount of virus in the body. So now we got another pill for that, right? ART also increases the risk, oh, excuse me. <laughs> Art also reduces the risk of HIV transmission. But then I was a little confused. I was trying to see, does, can this medication give you HIV? And it said, no, HIV medication is used to prevent or treat HIV. So, so if you were this infection, infectious people, you would want to take likely these pre-drugs, let's say your partner has AIDS or something, right? Well, that's where they would come in with more, more drug sales, right? Okay, um, PrEP, PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylactics. It's a pill or injection you can take when you don't have HIV but are likely to get the virus perhaps because of sex or injection drug use. It helps before you're infected, so HIV can't settle into your body and spread. PrEP works by blocking an enzyme HIV needs to make copies of itself or replicate in your body. After you start, start taking PrEP, it reaches, certain it reaches a certain level in your bloodstream and in your mucous membranes that help protect you from being infected. PrEP can be pills or shots. There are two pills approved for use as PrEP. Truvada or Descovy, D-E-S-C-O-V-Y. Truvada is for people at risk through sex or injection drug use. Descovy is for people at risk through sex. Discovy is not for people assigned female at birth who are at risk for HIV through receptive vaginal sex. The other one is the only shot approved for use as PrEP. Wow. <laughs> but they say it's 99% effective, right? PrEP as a daily pill that can be taken by people of any gender identity to prevent HIV infection. It is highly effective when taken as prescribed, reducing the risk of getting HIV from sex by about 99% and from injection drug use by at least 74%. There is also an on-demand PrEP schedule known as a 2-1-1 schedule, which involves taking two pills, okay, two pills, two to 24 hours before sex, one pill 24 hours after the first dose, and one pill 24 hours after the second dose. PEP, there's this, is it PEP or PrEP? Um, there's a pill called PEP. It's an emergency medication that should be taken within 72 hours after a possible exposure to HIV. So I guess if you go out to the gay bar one night and you have some unprotected sex and you're worried the next day they got a cure for you, right? I imagine these cures are probably very expensive too. Okay. 
So it should be taken with 72 hours after a possible exposure. If pres prescribed, it involves taking HIV medicines every day for 28 days. Imagine, I'll have to look these up. They're probably expensive. PrEP is considered safe and no significant health effects have been seen in people who are HIV negative and have taken PrEP for up to five years. But some people taking PrEP may experience side effects such as nausea, diarrhea, headache, fatigue, and stomach pain. These side effects are usually not serious and go away over time. Well, that's good to know. And then I asked this chat, GPT, it says, according to my sources, PrEP is considered safe. Well, see, they're always considered safe except for the nausea and stuff, right? But then, they, then, they, then I asked a third time, and yes, it could have liver problems. Liver problems again, right? So, um, yeah, liver problems. Maybe that's what's turning people's skin and stuff orange. Um, so, um, I was looking at other silent killers. The leading cause of death of silent killers. The United States, heart disease and cancer those two are coming from. Couldn't be the electricity in our homes, could it? Or the radiation? Okay, now back to the TV business. A total of 1.6 million people died from TV in 2021. Um, so, the one that they're considering the biggest crisis is the one called the multi-drug resistant TB or MDR-TB remains a public health crisis and a health security threat. Only about one in three people with drug resistant TB access treatment in 2021. And this is the marketing they're gonna use on this, right? An estimated 74 million lives were saved through TB diagnosis and treatment between 20 and 2021. According to the USA, 13 billion is needed annually for TB prevention, diagnosis, treatment, and care to achieve the global target agreed to at the 2018 UN high-level meeting on TB. Ending the TB epidemic by 2030 is among the health targets of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Wow, that's something else, right? They better get hopping. It's 2023 now. We only have seven years to go. Okay. Um, and about a quarter of the global population is estimated to have been affected with TB. About 5 to 10% of people infected with TB will eventually get symptoms. Kind of a broad blanket, isn't it? Um, they have one vaccine that they give to infants and children. It's been around for a million years. It's called the BCG vaccine. Um, the vaccine prevents TB outside of the lungs, but not in the lungs. Well, when you get radiation, I gotta tell you, you got it in the lungs. Um, people with latent TB infections don't feel sick and aren't contagious. Only a small portion of people who get infected with TB, see, it, it, this could cover really anybody now, couldn't it, this TB business? Um, because I think the TB is just a cover for the infection you get in your chest from the radiation, or the radium or whatever they're feeding these people, right? Um, 
Unlike TB infection, when a person gets TB disease, they will have symptoms. They, they may be mild for many months. So it's easy to spread TB to others without knowing it. Who are you going to call? Recommends the use of... Now we're going to get into the test, okay? And here, here's where the real money is, okay? Because there's a real big company that kind of has cornered the market. And what they so cleverly has done is um, once you buy the machine, then they, they, they charge for each of those cartridges a really high rate, okay? <laughs> so... Yeah, you flood the market with your machines, get your machines on all these places, and everybody's forced to buy your cartridges, right? Okay. So, the WHO recommends a couple rapid tests for TB, okay? Um, these tests have high diagnostic accuracy and will lead to major improvements, and they also have these skin tests, okay? And they have the diagnosing multiple drug multi-drug resistant and other resistant forms of TB um, as well as HIV associated cases can be complex and expensive. See, nobody really knows, right? Complex and expensive because they're going to do a whole bunch of tests because there's not really one test now, is there? Tuberculosis disease is treated with antibiotics. The most common antibiotics, and I've already gone through those, that's that isoate and the to be effective, this is where it gets really crazy. Um, and this is where I think they got, now I'm just thinking out loud, right? Because of the long period needed for these antibiotics to be taken. That I don't know, it seems to me they could be developing these bigger strains by taking them for so long, but what do I know, right? To be effective, these medications need to be taken daily for four to six months. It is dangerous to stop the medication early or without medical advice. This can allow TB that is still active to become resistant to the drugs. See, you don't even need a medical degree to figure this stuff out now, do you kids? Tuberculosis, tuberculosis that doesn't respond to standard drugs is called drug-resistant TB and requires more toxic treatments with different medicines. And they have about a 50% fall-off rate because these drugs are so toxic, right? Drug resistance emerges when TB medicines are used inappropriately through incorrect prescription by healthcare providers, poor quality drugs, or patients stopping treatment prematurely. Multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, or MDR-TB, is a form of TB caused by bacteria that do not respond to those two drugs the two most effective frontline TB drugs. But it's curable by the second line drugs, which that really is a fistful of drugs, right? That's usually when they send them off to some place and give them drugs day and night. Okay, um, because second line treatment options require extensive medications that are expensive and toxic. Let that word toxic sink into your brain, okay? Okay, um, Only one, this is where they're building up the, the demand, only one in three people with drug-resistant TB access treatment in 2021. In accordance with, who are you going to call, guidelines, detection requires 
bacteriological confirmation of TB and testing for drug resistance using rapid molecular tests or culture methods, okay? So um, there is, I'm gonna scan past some, some of these treatments and stuff. Um, so effective tuberculosis treatment has been available for the past 60 years, but TB remains the leading cause of death from a single infectious agent. It ranks above HIV and AIDS and others. This is partly because of the impact of HIV co-infections among TB patients in places like Africa and emergency, the, the super spreader ones, right? So COVID-19 surpassed TB as a killer over the past two years. So, um, but what they're saying, um, because of that, people were missing treatment and stuff. Uh, and they had progress in TB elimination was being made, but the COVID pandemic lockdown set back the TB program. See where this is gonna come into the white guilt? Well, we set aside the TB because of the COVID stuff and all you white people were over there getting all these vaccines and stuff. So give us the, give us the disease over here. Well, they're just building up demand, right? Poor black people didn't get the, didn't get the COVID drugs. Okay, so so set back TB TB control programs worldwide, more so in Africa. While COVID nineteen prevention measures like mask wearing could have prevented TB transmission on the whole. Little attention was given to holding the forts of TB prevention and treatment, and all efforts went to fight the COVID-19 pandemic, disrupting well-functioning programs built over decades of careful research and planning. This disruption has resulted in the following. Increased TB rates. In 2021, there were 10.6 million new active TB cases worldwide, up from 9.9 .9 million. These increases have been in both drug-resistant and multi-drug resistant TB cases. Increased TB deaths. In 21, there were an estimated 1.6 million deaths from TB worldwide, up from 1.5 million in 2020. This is a reversal of years of decline before the TB. Boy, that COVID-19 got in the way of this TB business now, didn't it? Okay, decline in TB global spending during and after COVID-19 pandemic. Global spending on essential TB services dropped from US 6, $6 billion in 2019 to $5.4 billion in 2021. This is less than half of what is needed. The war in Ukraine has compounded this extended decline in TB prevention and control. Even before the Russian invasion, Ukraine had the highest TB rate. The war has extirpated the situation with health facilities being destroyed and people displaced. African TB control programs that rely on aid and global fund support have been affected the most. How do we correct this? Good you ask. The first 
end TB strategy milestones for reduction in TB disease should guide what needs to be done. Well, I don't know that I need to go over all these strategies because we understand that they're probably all just crazy lies, right? Um, they need to increase the budgets, they need to do this, they need to do that. Uh, what should they focus on? Um, target high-risk groups for universal testing, find the most or all missing active TB case in communities, um, enhance screening and case-finding activities at health facilities. Gotta watch those screenings. If you, if you go to a doctor and get screened, they're gonna find something ghastly, aren't they? Expanded use of chest radiography with or without computer-aided detection for TB. Ensure regular supply of diagnostic and drugs through local manufacturing. You gotta get those drugs in there. And no, there is not a vaccine yet, okay? The BCG vaccine is the only one there. Um, there are alternative treatment strategies known as host-directed therapies that focus, on, that focus on fixing the body rather than the bacteria. These therapies work to improve the state of the immune system and limit lung tissue destruction. And here's where we get into the vitamin D. And pay attention here. Also, I will note, and this is not medical advice, if you're gonna be taking vitamin D, which I would strongly recommend, you want to take K2 at the same time. It's K2 makes it work, okay? Okay, because there's a reason why they want us out of the sun, okay? And it's because of this vitamin D business. So I'm gonna go through this vitamin D. So just stick with me here because it will start to make a great deal of sense here, okay? Um, so, um, Fixing the body, okay, these therapies work to improve the state of the immune system. Some examples of host-directed therapies include vitamin D, met metformin, which is a diabetes drug, and some other anti-inflammatory drugs, okay, but let's focus on the vitamin D. Vitamin D is one of the host-directed therapies being investigated for use in ad adjunct TB therapy. It has been shown, let me show, give me one second here. I just realized I haven't checked in a long time to make sure I'm plugged in and stuff, okay. Um, okay. So vitamin D. It has been shown to induce specific immune molecules that have proven effective against the TB bacteria. The risk of mycobacterium tuberculosis or TB infection, or progressive of active TB disease is elevated in individuals with vitamin D deficiency. Did you read, hear me say that? So people with infection or progression of TB disease have is elevated. Oh, vitamin D deficiency. So they always break these words that kind of flip in your brain, right? It should have been phrased differently, but let me phrase it this way. People with TB have been found to have low vitamin D, okay? High dose vitamin D was used to treat TB in the pre-antibiotic era and in vitro experimental data show that vitamin D supports innate immune responses that restrict 
growth of MTB, which is the myocardium tuberculosis. So they show that vitamin D suppresses that, right? So, um, and then, so then I looked is because people with darker skin, like in Africa, do not absorb vitamin D the same way. And you'll have to go look on your own because I can't get into every little detail here, okay? But, so I was looking at, do people in Africa have lower high vitamin D? You would think they'd have high because they're in Africa, it's hot there, right? But the color of the skin has to do with things. So, um, vitamin D deficiency. Now, I, I didn't check this a million ways, so please check this more carefully for yourself, okay? The public uh, vitamin D deficiency is highly prevalent in African populations. And public health strategies in Africa should include efforts. Yeah, they're not going to, but anyway. I was just looking. A number of factors may contribute to vitamin D deficiency in Africa. One major cause is urbanization, as people are spending more time indoors, and also all the fear they gave us about skin cancer. I'm pretty convinced that probably sunscreens are what give you skin cancer over anything, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> if you're going to get... They tell you to put on sunscreen so you don't get skin cancer, right? And I saw some studies here. I'm just talking off the top of my head. But I saw studies years ago that there seemed to be a pretty high prevalence of people who use sunscreen and also got skin cancers. <laughs> okay. Um, a number of factors contribute. The urbanization. Um, in contrast, Africans in rural settings have been reported to have one of the highest levels of vitamin D in the world. So they're saying rural settings have highest, okay? Additionally, Africans have large amounts of melanin in their skin, which reduces vitamin D production. So it's the melanin in darker-skinned peoples, which tangles with the vitamin D and how it transmits and stuff. Vitamin D deficiency can be difficult to notice because symptoms may not occur for months or years. Doesn't that sound familiar, right? All these other things don't occur for months or years. Sometimes you may have no symptoms at all. However, common signs or symptoms of vitamin D deficiency include frequent illnesses or infections, fatigue, back pain, hair loss, hair loss poor wound healing, and symptoms of depression. Also, symptoms you get from radiation, poor wound healing, depression, all those things. Vitamin D is sometimes called a sunshine vitamin because your body makes it from cholesterol when your skin is exposed to sunlight. However, now this is where we get interesting, okay? Radiation therapy can change the composition of the gut microbia, which in turn influences the serum level of vitamin D and its distribution and metabolism in the body. So, radiation therapy changes the gut microbiome, okay? Which is very interesting, right? Which has to do with your vitamin D. So, if you're getting radiated, you're going to lose your hair and all that kind of stuff. I thought some of this stuff was from the radiation itself, but it's actually from the vitamin D leaving your body, right? Radiation theory therapy can change the composition, which in turn influences the serum level of vitamin D and its distribution. Alternation of vitamin D level 
influences the patient response to radiotherapy, where the underlying mechanisms may be associated with the intestinal microenvironmental immune molecules in the intestines, gut microbes, and signaling pathways associated with vitamin D receptors. This has to do with the radiation goes after your vitamin D receptors, is how I'm reading this, right? So, um, total white blood cell counts decrease. See, it's all how you read the literature, right? Because I was thinking these symptoms come directly from the radiation, but they come from the radiation via your gut microbes and the vitamin D thing. See where I'm going here with this? So, um, baseline TV treatment failure, okay. Future research, well, they don't know what they're talking. I don't know. Total white blood cells count decrease during TB treatment. Yes, that happens, okay. Um, baseline lymphopenia and leukocytosis are associated with TB treatment failure. Well, if you have any of these things, please read the literature yourself because I'm a little part of what, if you haven't noticed yet, radiation does. It makes your head a little bit fuzzy, so... I'm going to stay away from areas that make my head even fuzzy, okay? Okay, because here is, here is key, key, key. Radiotherapy changes the composition of the gut. That is it. That is it. Um, and your vitamin D level. Um, I must have copied and pasted that a hundred times. Okay, um, The immune molecules in the intestines include a variety of immune cells such as T cells, B cells, lymphoid cells, and too many cells for me to, but, but these are, these immune cells play an essential role in managing the microbiota to maintain health, homeostasis, and the gut. So micro, this, the TB, what was called MTB, is the bacteria that causes tuberculosis and it mainly affects the lungs but can also affect any other organ including bone brain and spine is able to reprogram your metabolism and these well well, it has to do with the T-cells, and I don't really understand it enough, but I'm going to start tripping myself up if I keep going here on that. So let's just stick with the fact that it goes after our gut bacteria, and that's where our vitamin D is. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know why I put this here, but um, this is how they push this stuff, right? Um, CDC recommends that everyone between the ages of 13 and 64 should get tested for HIV at least once. <laughs> cha-ching, cha-ching. Some sexually active gay and bisexual men may benefit from frequent testing every three to six months. Cha-ching, cha-ching. Okay, let me back to here, okay. Um, um, vitamin D has several important functions. Perhaps the most vital are regulating the absorption of cal calcium and phosphorus and facilitating normal immune system function. Well, also remember too, with low white blood count, it attacks the um, 
bone marrow. That's why all these people that they're getting treatment for TB and stuff, they complain about their legs and stuff. And I'm having trouble with my legs. My dog's having trouble with his legs because it attacks the bone marrow. Um, there are two kinds of tests used to detect TB bacteria in the body. And they have, the, they have a skin test and a blood test, but I'm gonna get down to the good tests. They're, they're marketing these new tests, right, okay? And um, the new test, <laughs> okay. There is this company, I'll have to start reading from here, otherwise I'll get myself confused, okay? It's called CEPHID, C-E-P-H-E-I-D, okay? In the 15 years to 2016, CEPHID only turned an annual profit once, but as the number of installations grew, there was reason for optimism. Every new device locks in years of demand for CEPHID's test cartridges because there are no competing suppliers. Investors got their payday in September 2016 when U.S. Science and Technology Group Danaher, D-A-N-A-H-E-R, said it would buy Sepher for $4 billion, a 54% premium on its stock. So they are referring to the way sales of the, it's called the Gene Expert, Gene, G-E-N-E, Expert, X-P-E-R-T machine. It creates demand for cartridges thus driving more revenue over time than does the machine itself, which costs $11,000 and upwards. So um, there's another group you want to pay attention to. It's called the Global Fund, okay? And that includes, um, oh, all, you know, the Gabby people. Uh, Gabby is that vaccine group, and Melissa and Bill Gates, and that whole mob of people, you know, the Aspen group and all those people. The Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria told Reuters it approved grants worth $542 million to help developing countries buy gene expert platforms, cartridges, and support laboratories over the period 2017 to 2023. <coughs> I think what happened was COVID came along and not all this money got spent. Okay. CEPHA's Gene Expert launched in 2005 for clinical applications. Tests had, that had previously required a laboratory, trained staff, and multiple instruments could now be conducted by putting a sample into a cartridge and loading it into this Gene Expert diagnostic device. The cartridge is a kind of miniature lab pre-filled with regents to detect genetic material associated with infection. The system is considered as good or as better than non-automated PCR tests. The same company made the same tests for all of the um, COVID stuff. This Sepher's gene expert, okay? So that was 2005 and the next year CEPID won a key funding partner the Geneva-based Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostic, a nonprofit, <laughs> here we go again, organization set up with financial backing from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, offering funding for a new test for drug-resistant tuberculosis. CPEL 
have also received 120 million in fund, and this is from 2005, I believe. 120. No, no, wait a minute. All so Bill and Melinda gave the money, but they also received 120 million from U.S. taxpayers <laughs> from the U.S. military, according to a 2011 presentation by the Gates Foundation. A Department of Defense official said she couldn't confirm the figure. Well, of course not, because they don't care about anything but spending money, right? Money and murder, right? Money, murder, medicine, the three M's. Seifert's tuberculosis test was ready to roll out but by 2009, winning an endorsement from the WHO. By 2016, Seifert had accepted some $68.1 million from this fine fund, which is set up for Bill and Melinda Gates <clears throat> and other public or nonprofit organizations to develop this technology and offer discounts to developing countries. Well, we call it a public health revolution, says this creep. Okay, um, so they did this develop this thing, <coughs> this machine, and um, before they were using like finger pricks and some blood test thing. Uh, I don't know, didn't that Theranos thing say it was going to be just a really quick, easy little thing? I haven't looked up the problems with this test. I'm sure there's many, but not the subject for today. Okay. So they were saying that um, they, um, the world needs rapid molecular DST that can detect resistance to the most common first and second line drugs. So these tests can also test people to see if they're resistant to drugs or something too. Or so they say, right? The test could just be shooting out nonsense for all we know. Right? So these tests are supposedly faster, results in under 90 minutes, um, easier to use. They run on existing gen expert platforms equipped with Ten color modules. Okay, so yeah, um, gene-based test developer Sepet of Sunnyvale said Thursday it has devised a rapid test. Um, yeah, haven't they ever, right? Multi-drug resistant TB is becoming increasingly prevalent throughout the world, making TB harder to treat with the usual treatment regimens that includes. Rifamicin. The base test would get all these things taken care of, right? Um, work, the Sunnyvale company worked with the Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics. Well, well, well. Um, see, this is the interesting thing about this test to think about and explore further for yourself. This, this kind of, I don't know. It has something to do with DNA, right? Um, but I don't know enough about it, so I'll just read what it says. Cephid's new TB test detects DNA sequences that are unique to t TB and to drug resistance. GeneX system readers can be as small as a fat textbook, so they can be used in mobile clinics for people far from a hospital. The company will sell the test in Sub-Saharan Africa and other developed nations for the cost of the equipment and other expenses such as shipping. Hmm. In the U.S., the smallest GeneX reader costs about twenty-seven thousand dollars. 
They said the heaviest use of the TB test is likely to be in developing nations afflicted with a high TB rate. But CPID will also seek FND, oh, excuse me, FND, <laughs> really fumbles your, <laughs> will also seek FDA clearance. But I don't know if that's ever happened or not, okay. Tuberculosis, which can be spread through the air, was once the leading cause of death in the United States before medicines were discovered in the 1940s, according to the CDC. At this point, U.S. cities with an influx of immigrants have to be on guard for TB transmission. Um, so I was looking at common diseases, okay? The most common diseases in Africa include malaria, which is also vector included, right? Vector means those mosquitoes, right? Vector is also bio, right? Anybody could set loose a bunch of mosquitoes with malaria loose, right? I've talked about in the past, there were some, um, some company that was releasing mosquitoes in Florida that had diseases. I mean, <laughs> so malaria obviously can come from this whole program, right? Infect some mosquitoes, HIV and AIDS, dengue, tuberculosis, and cholera. Cholera, the UN people gave the people in Haiti cholera in the water. Um, so Haiti's been suffering with cholera ever since then. So tuberculosis is the leading infectious cause of death globally and the ninth leading cause overall. Okay, so um, many countries in Africa still rely on smear. This is all part of their, I got this off of the WHO website. Who are you going to call? Um, the World Health Organization recommends the use of rapid yeah, they and um, the expert nuclear. Oh, that's too much to get into. Um, yeah, so you're looking for the name Cepel, C E P H E L D, is an American molecular diagnostic company. Its systems automate traditional nucleic acid tests, tests for specific sequences of DNA or RNA. The test can be used to identify and analyze pathogens and genetic disorders. Cephid sells clinical tests for healthcare-associated infections, infection diseases, sexual health, oncology, and genetics. Well, I got a swing of guess here, right? Remember, in this country, we have um, the mm, the people in Utah that are gathering DNA. They're a privately held company in Utah run by the guy who used to run the New York Times. I'll think of his name in a minute. Privately held country in Utah, company in Utah. Then we have the 23andMe, which is run by the wife of the Google founder. I have always said that they set these companies up to get us to pay to get their DNA gathering started, right? Because they really don't have... That's why they had to come up with that Edward Snowden thing to act like they have all this stuff, right? So... I'm kind of convinced that possibly this expert machine that they're pushing to go to Africa and start, it's the same machine they're using to do diagnostic testing here, right? It says right here, Gene, the name is G-E-N-E-X-P-E-R-T, machines. 
why would this machine be hiding right here in plain sight? And actually the purpose of this machine is not to test to see if you really have TB or DNA or RNA or <laughs> COVID, <laughs> but to gather your DNA, right? I mean, you gotta think about these things, right? You give them access to your blood samples and stuff or your spit or whatever you're doing here and you gotta kinda wonder, right? Okay, the cartridges are single-use. The company has been accused of profiteering, <laughs> particularly in developing countries, by pricing the cartridges at many times the cost of productions and engage in price discrimination. I can't imagine that. Not a USA country. A company from this country, excuse me, a company from this country price gouging in other countries? Nah, don't say it can't happen. Okay, so, um, that, so that, so, each sample is tested as cartridge, okay? Um, the machine provides a temperature cycling needed for the PCR. This makes many copies of DNA matching the sample. So they can show the presence or absence of pathogens. There are short sections of DNA which have been made to attach to this other molecule. Yeah, I don't know. They can just swab and do all this stuff? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they're trying to catch up from not having um, gathered our DNA to begin with, right? <coughs> because really, in order to gather our DNA effectively, this machine would do it, right? Because otherwise, what would be the plan? Go hospital to hospital and slug it out? <laughs> That's pretty funny if you think about it. Okay, here's a name you want to look for. Called the Global Fund, okay? The Global Fund. 20 years ago, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria seemed unbeatable. In 2002, in an act of extraordinary global solidarity and leadership, the world came together to create the Global Fund to fight which were the deadliest pandemics confronting humanity. Over the 20 years that followed, the Global Fund partnership has invested more than U.S. $55.4 billion saving 50 million lives and reducing the combined death rate from the three diseases by more than half in the countries where we invest. Now, I'm reading from their page. I'm not part of the we here. <laughs> so we got the little diseases we're looking at, which seem to be inflicted by these people, right? AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, right? The Global Fund is a worldwide movement Okay, we, we, we raise and invest $4 billion a year to fight in more than 100 countries. We unite world leaders, communities. Yeah, I bet they do. Um, to achieve the greatest impact against the deadliest infectious diseases, we challenge power dynamics. Yes, let's get those things around to the poor. So there is a lot of the global fund. It's basically the, um, you know, the usual characters. The Global Fund's 2022 results report blah 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 um, find a significant rebound in 2021 for programs working to defeat HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria. In 2020, the COVID pandemic had a devastating impact on the fight against the three diseases, leading to the decline of key program results across the three diseases for the first time in history of the Global Fund. When the pandemic hit countries where the Global Fund works, 
the partnership rapidly mounted a response to deliver additional resources. By working together, the Global Fund Partnership has saved 50 million lives over the past two decades. I think the number they might want to try to include are, how many lives have they taken away? <laughs> if they're bragging about 50 million, it looks to me, I don't know, it looks to me like they're looking to wipe out millions. Just go look at a map. Just pull up a map of the world with, H with HIV and TB prevalence, okay? I think you'll notice the countries are rather concerning when you look at places like Africa and India and the statistics, okay? And last time I checked, pretty dark-skinned countries, right? These people are such racist, right? I would go by, the, I, I would think they're bumping off the people with the darkest skin first is my guess, right? Because India and Africans have darker skin than Chinese people, right? Just do the math. Okay, they said that for HIV, um, well, I'm not going to go through their numbers because they're probably liars, but anyways, they have all these numbers on their website if you want to go look at them. Um, so yeah, 2002, the world came together to get this billion dollar fund going, okay? And um, the board includes um, the World Bank, it, it's just the regular characters, the World Bank, all the people, <coughs> World Health Organization, who are you going to call? Voting members, Canada, Switzerland, Australia, um, developing countries, everybody, the who's who, UK, US, Western, Africa, Japan, Germany, it's all of them. Okay, here's some facts. By early 2020, Africa had nearly 5,000 of these gene expert devices capable of processing more than 21,000 tests at a time, according to Africa CDC. Okay, um, so yeah, I think that um, my guess is this. I think it, they're gathering DNA with these things. I think that's probably the only purpose, right? Um, because the African CDC estimates there are enough CPED <coughs> gene expert machines installed across the continent to carry out 1.6 million tests a week. There are far fewer Abbott and Roche, those are other Roche companies. Abbott machines have a total ca capacity of under, well, a lot lower capacity, okay? So, looks like the winner is going to be that big test, okay? Um, okay, um, so yeah, the Africa projected the continent will need 4.4 million CPID COVID-19 test cartridges. Why are I talking about those? Well, I don't care about that. Anyway, so yeah, same people that did the COVID stuff. C-E-P-H-E-I-D. Very easy to find information. And I really think that um, this is going to be about it. And um, how, how much longer do you think this game show is going to be going on here? They got the TV going in Africa coming up pretty soon. It looks like they're, um, I don't know. I think they're, they're, they're coming around the corner. But anyway, let's play out this song, Eve of Destruction. And be safe out there. Goodbye for now.
my computer's all funny. My E key isn't working. Oh boy, it's time to get off this game board. <coughs> <laughs> I lost my E key this week and my, oh boy. Okay, here we go. I'm gonna do is this. This is their theme song. Something must be wrong here. You know what happens is <coughs> chords and stuff only last for so long with me. There we go. Okay, let me go back here. This is a good song. This is one of my. Okay, here we go. 